the not-so-forgotten. I have never understood what forces cause two people to part ways, especially when it is someone that you clearly love. I'd like to believe that there is some cosmic force determined to divide the enchantment of prison love, but the realist inside of me seeks logical explanations, such as my inability to participate in her life, the never-ending waiting of changes in a prisoner's circumstances, and of course the lack of physical intimacy. I've often wondered if anyone would stand the test of time, but maybe I was looking at the question all wrong. Would I really want someone that I love to be in prison? Someone that I loved so much. And surely, if there was a cosmic force determined to divide love, then there has to be an equal or greater force determined to see that love prevails. The romantic inside of me wants to believe that there is one woman in the world meant just for me and that nothing will keep us apart. But as a prisoner, I've seen how hard prison relationships can really be. The constant worrying and the endless frustrations often overwhelm even the most resolved couples. Prison was not designed to accommodate the feelings of love. I think in building bonds with those we admire, we fail to remember the pain surrounding our imprisonment and how that pain is a part of the punishment imposed. It's sad to know that with every act of beauty, I must accept the pain that will soon accompany it. Like all the great people who have come into my life and are no longer here, I wish I could show them how much their time meant to me. I have been changed by the people that I've met, and the traits that I admire in them, I have adopted as my own. Each encounter we have with another person changes them in some way, good or bad, and that change will create a memory that alters their views. I was talking to my friend recently, and I told him we all have our own stories. None of us are the same. We're all unique. Our life is full of unique encounters, whether they are the people, situations, or images. Some we find appealing and others we're appalled by. We tend to fill our life with the appealing similarities and push away the unique when we don't understand it. We see unique couples everywhere we look. We see unique images on walls and billboards daily. We are constantly faced with the situations that create a unique memory that forever changes how we view something. As a prisoner, I tend to seek out what is unique, and that's probably because I have more time for introspection. The men behind these walls are not all a bunch of hooligans and outcasts. They are the same people who you see at work, in the grocery store, or on your couch. We have gangsters, drug dealers, doctors and lawyers, cops in prison. So isn't it ironic how we often tend to forget that anyone can make a terrible choice? It saddens me to know that some people will always view me as my past, no matter how great the accomplishments I achieve in my future. I have learned to find understanding in the opinions of others and the opinions that they have towards me. But what about the men and women who can't find logic in someone's negative views? We constantly rally for no more bullying, yet it surrounds every person on earth. Kids who can't find alternatives for their personal grief turn towards violence or suicide. Others seek escape through drugs, 
often they end up here only to remain oblivious, still grieving, and still trying to escape. And I ask them why, and I listen to their stories without interruption, unique, yet somehow sadly similar. Each and every one of them wanted something. Whether it was money, help, or love, they never seemed to be able to find it. The need was there, their voice screamed with pain, the loneliness was written boldly on their sleeves, but no one bothered. Their uniqueness was distasteful. It was complicated. A beautiful life is one that has discovered the beauty in what stood out and sought to understand why it existed. I could look at my childhood and be paralyzed by the neglect. I could blame the system for my misguided criminal beliefs, and I could lash out at those who left me behind, but that would only cause pain to a world that has far too much of it already, and deprive me of the gratitude I have for all of the people who have made my life beautiful. No matter who you are or what your situation is, find the beauty in the unique. What's unique to you is different than what it is to everyone else on earth, and that is why how you view it should be a choice you make alone. Despite how your friends or family or religion view it, when we fear being unique or loving what is unique, it creates a distorted image of our true self. When, the, when that continues to happen as the desires to please others constantly confront us, we deny the world of someone who could have been the one to change it. Thank you. Chapter 1 to Necropolis, the city of death. Who am I? It's a question I've asked myself many times. When I look in the mirror, I see the eyes from an Irish heritage I know little about. But the eyes never lie, as the saying goes. And when I ask that question, who am I? The answer they give me is always the same. No one. This is no sob story and I will make no excuses. My home life wasn't the best, but that's not why I was bad. I was bad because it excited me, just as it excited others around me. I grew up in violence, and that violence grew up in me. I was born and raised in San Bernardino, California, where the Santa Fe Railroad splits the city in two. I moved around a lot, but the west side always had my heart. It's not just the railroad tracks that divide us. Like most places, we're split between rich and poor, old and young, good and bad. Me, I was poor and I was young. But was I bad? Am I bad now? I don't know. I truly don't know. What I do know is that I've done bad things in my life. It's a truth I will never run away from and I blame no one else for that. In 1984, Kaiser Steel closed down. 
Thousands of good people lost their jobs and fell into a big black hole that many never escaped from. When the plant closed, it's like people's lives got closed down too. Selling drugs must have seemed like easy money, and plenty of those who had depended on the steelwork took the risk. The city was filled with families like mine, poor and addicted to drugs. Our friends were the same as us. My mother loved me as any mother loves her child. We shared the same eyes and dishwater blonde hair. Everyone said she was pretty. She never wanted me to dislike her, so she didn't have many rules. And the ones she did have, they weren't enforced. She let me do whatever I wanted. And being a kid, I was too dumb to know any better. One of the many stupid things I did was drugs. And when I say drugs, I mean methamphetamine. And it was the worst thing I had ever touched as a kid. And a major contributor to the evil that was my life. I never knew my father. But my mom's dad, my grandfather, Bernie Kirk. He was a big, intimidating man. He looked like the Ponderosa's Ben Cartwright. In our family, he played a similar role. He was the leader of our family. And everyone, especially the kids, we all looked up to him. But my grandfather was no saint, and he reflected more of the bad side of San Bernardino than the good. He owned A&S Transmission on Baseline Avenue. On the outside, it looked like a regular transmission shop. But everyone who knew Bernie Kirk, they knew they could find other stuff inside, including drugs and weapons. He had four more children besides my mother. Uncle Brian, he was the oldest. Then John, Jerry, and my Aunt Kathy. His, his wife was a wonderful grandmother to me. Like all grandmas, it seems, she loved to cook. When she wasn't making wholesome family meals, she was baking to make sure we always had snacks. She was understanding and loving, but also smart. She must have seen a lot, and I knew when to get tough. She knew when to get tough, when to, we got mischievous. Unlike her husband, grandma was small and religious, and the kindest person I knew as a child, she was my grandma. Aunt Kathy was born five years after my mom, and has always been important to me. She's been not just like a second mother, but a sister and a friend. She looked after me as a kid, and she would take me places and be there when I needed her. When I was just a baby, she would pretend that I was hers and show me off to people. We grew up together and always had a strong bond. I always loved her greatly. In 1989, the San Bernardino train disaster happened. A train came off the rails on Duffy Street and caused a huge explosion. It killed six people. In 1989, it was the same year when I was eight years old, I was taken away for the first time to Child Protective Services. I was placed with Mr. C and his wife. They were family friends who lived in Wrightwood, California. I remember the mountains covered with snow and the smell of pine and wood smoke. The trees stood taller than any I had ever seen, and the sky was brighter than any blue, especially the gray, polluted ones that I'd grown up with. Life seemed good at first with Mr. C and his wife. They were religious people. So they took me places um, to a variety of church programs with kids my own age. They took me hunting, 
It was a new experience for a city kid. And I learned how to use a bow and arrow and how to skin a deer. Mr. C was a good hunter and tracker. He knew the woods well. Besides deer and rabbit, we hunted quail, duck, and even bear. For my 10th birthday, my grandfather paid for horseback riding lessons. In the mind of my 10-year-old self, learning how to ride, I was getting closer to becoming the Indian I always imagined I would have been. I had a horse and bow and arrows, and I learned how to salt and skin animals. So I was almost there. It didn't matter to my that my hair was blonde and my skin was white. I was an Indian at heart. I had a lot of fun hunting, but sadly, the fun didn't last. One night I was lying in bed, just having finished my prayers, when Mr. C came into the room and asked if I had prayed. I replied, yes, sir. And he looked at me coldly. His wife was a big woman with black hair and scrunched up face. She stood at his side and had a clear look of disdain on her face. They said that I was lying. And I didn't understand why they were saying that because I, I really did have prayed. I got upset and I yelled at them. I, I did too. I was so mad on the verge of tears and I didn't know what more to say. They were wrong, but didn't know it. They, they wouldn't listen to me. In their eyes, I was just a lying little boy. And I looked from one to the other, but I had no idea what was about to happen. Suddenly, Mr. C stepped forward and he grabbed my hair. And he ripped me from my bed and my, and my hair and slammed me to the floor. And I was still clutching my blue comforter for protection. But my comforter was no comforter at all. And I was beaten with his fist, and they kicked me with their boots. And they were coming from all directions. And I was desperately reached for the darkness under the bed. If I could get there, I could hide. And I wanted to be anywhere other than on the floor with them above me. But I never made it. I remember nothing more. Maybe I was knocked out. In the morning when I woke up, I had two black eyes and my body ached all over. I wasn't allowed to go to school or to church programs after that for a while, and I couldn't play outside either. Looking back, I think they were more scared than I was, but for different reasons. A couple weeks later, I went to my grandpa's house and I begged him not to make me go back. He said I could live with him, and I never, see Miss, I never saw Mr. C or his wife ever again. After that beating, I never felt right about praying, not as a child anyways, but that's what God's people were like. I'd rather stay away from them and God too. I blame God for what they did to me and for my feelings of weakness. I didn't like being not being able to defend myself and I hated feeling weak and it left me with no faith in God.